Uh, I, last night, as the rain was falling, I was watching. People were starting to put buckets out for the water that was falling and the drips and the things and, and stuff. And I kind of had to laugh a little bit because it reminded me of one of the weirdest miracles I ever saw. Whenever I see rain falling inside of a building, I, I, I kind of check to see if it's actually raining outside. Because uh, uh, years ago, the first church that I ever pastored uh, was a church in Austin, Texas, an Assembly of God church. I pastored there for about 12 years. And, uh, and we bought, uh, the, the church grew, it was in a strip center, and, and we bought land, we built a building, and we went through the whole building project uh, thing and uh, raised all this money, a lot of sweat and blood putting this building up. And we were a spirit-filled church, but you would never know it. I mean, because we were programmed down to the minute of everything that we were going to do. Because I figured this, this simple fact out. If you want to grow a church in the United States of America, all you have to do is have hot worship, relatively decent, short preaching, and make the kids happy. If you can keep the services under an hour and keep the kids happy, you'll have a mega church in no time. It's true. And so, uh, <clears throat> so we, were, we, were in, we had the formula down. And the church was exploding. We were doing regular baptisms. Altar calls were always, uh, our people were always responding to them. We had discipleship classes. We were rocking and we were going, but we had pushed the power of the Holy Spirit out. There was just no room for uh, things we couldn't explain. And uh, my dad came to visit. He was a missionary evangelist, traveled all over the world. One of the weirdest people you could ever know. He was so wonderful. He was, he was my hero and the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. And I sat under him my entire life. And this is back in the days when people would do three and four week revivals. And so I'd sit and listen to him night after night. He was better than anything on TV. And, uh, and so I trusted. I trusted when he, when he spoke truth into my life. And our motto at the time was everything with excellence. And my dad comes to visit our church and see the new building. And I said, Dad, what do you think? After the service was all done, he said, what do you think, Dad? Um, he would stand behind me before I would preach, by the way. If I was to be sitting on the front row, and he would go and unless he was preaching, he, he would stand behind me and he'd put his hands on my shoulders and he'd begin to pray. And he had this very familiar voice that just, just spoke the Father's heart over me. And it was, it was just a great way to grow up in ministry. But he had never said a critical word to me about anything in ministry until this day. And you know how dads have this way of wording things? That it's like, I feel like you just... It, it sounded like you were giving me a compliment, but it didn't feel that way, you know? And, uh, and I said, man, Dad, what an excellent morning. What'd you think? And he goes, yeah, you guys are excellent, all right. You're so excellent, you don't even need the Holy Spirit, and you can still do church. <laughs> Boom, wow. Here's the crazy part. I knew he was right. We had pushed the supernatural power of God out. And we had limited, I limited my preaching only to things I could understand, which was my safety net. And, and I knew something had to change. So I decided we're going to increase our prayer time. So I called for a staff prayer meeting on a Saturday in October 2004, I believe it was. And uh, we're stand, standing in the sanctuary Saturday afternoon with about nine of our team and then my family, my wife and two kids were there. And I'm standing in the sanctuary, and I say, God, send the rain of your presence. Totally a metaphor. 
and I feel a drop of water hit my arm. Another one, and I look up, and over us, the ceiling was about 27 feet tall, and over us falling was water from this wet spot that was growing really fast. And I would say in less than a minute, that wet spot that was dripping a lot had covered the entire sanctuary. It went all the way back to the sound booth from side to side, and it was falling all over the place. And I knew how much those chairs cost. I knew how much we paid for that, you know, everything in this place. The, the soundboard, the new projector that we, I mean, it's like, oh my goodness. And I'm watching water drip off this stuff. And I got mad. And I said out loud, this is bad. This is wrong. This is going to ruin everything. And the staff knowing that I was frustrated, ran and grabbed plastic and anything it could find and trying to cover up the sound system, trying to cover up chairs. I mean, it was, it was crazy. And I I'd left my phone out in the car. And so I stomped outside, just furious, ran outside to, to call the contractor to tell him to get up here and fix this building. My son, Britton, who was 10 years old at the time, follows me outside and he noticed what I didn't notice. And that was that there was not a cloud in the sky. And he goes, Dad, look, it's dry outside, but it's raining in the sanctuary. He thought it was cool. And I looked and stopped, standing right in the middle of the parking lot. And I felt the Holy Spirit slam into my chest and, and talk to me internally as loud as I've ever heard him speak. And this is what he said. If I pour out on this church what you've just asked me for, the same response you just had will be the same response all these people have. This is bad. This is wrong. And this is going to ruin everything. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Stood there and wept for a little while. And in about 15 minutes, a worship pastor comes outside and goes, hey, you should come look at this. And he walked inside and it was dry, like not a spot of water anywhere. Where they had put plastic out and the water had collected, it was just dust. And they wrapped everything up and put it away. And I thought, God, what are you saying? What's going on? I felt the Lord saying, I want you to preach from now on things you don't understand. I want to take you beyond understanding. The Bible says, may the peace of God, which surpasses or goes beyond understanding will keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, your heart and mind are never safer from deception than when you're willing to go beyond the place of understanding. And beyond the realm of understanding is where you actually find peace. There's a measure of peace that comes to you when you give up your right to understand. So I became very comfortable with saying this. I don't know. Why is that going on? I don't know. And then I started preaching, you know, okay, in the middle of all of this, this time where we're pursuing the supernatural, I don't know why I'm telling my story this morning, but maybe it's for some of you. Um, in the middle of all of this time, we're pursuing the supernatural. I, 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 need to, I need to find people who can understand at least what I don't understand. And so uh, I was, uh, uh, Tracy and I, we, we ended up resigning the church after 12 years, blessed it. I still go back and minister there and wonderful, wonderful people, but we went on a journey. We knew God was taking us somewhere. And so uh, we moved out into the country. Tracy wrote a book, and uh, I went to work for a computer company. And I thought, that's it. I'm done with ministry. Because i got to tell you, I've tried to get out of ministry at least a half dozen times in my life. 
because um, this was my dad's thing. It wasn't mine. And so I was going to go and finally do what I felt like I really wanted to do and, and make a living. And, and so I'm working at this computer company. And a friend of mine says to me, hey, I want you to come to this conference. Uh, come, come to this conference with me. Uh, there's this guy there you, you, you got to hear. He says, he's from California. You got to hear this guy. And I'm like, yeah, I'm conferenced out. I don't really want to go. And so uh, reluctantly, I semi-agreed to go. It was on a Thursday night, I, I woke myself up with my face down in my pillow. It's a weird way to sleep. And I was saying out loud, Tracy, you heard me say this, we both woke up, I was saying out loud, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. And I was repeating this phrase, and it was weird because I don't say the word novice very often. What you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. And I wrote it down on a piece of paper by the side of my bed and I went back to sleep. Friday morning I wake up and my friend calls me up and says, you going to go to this conference with me tonight? I said, yeah, sure, I'll show up. So I knew the pastor of this church. It was a large church down in Austin. And I thought, well, I don't need to get there early. I'll, just, I'll get a seat when I get there. No big deal. I walk in and I have to weave through a crowd. There are people standing outside in the foyer. It's packed. I'm standing up against the back wall, and there's a guy named Bill Johnson standing up in the front. I'd never heard of Bill before. It's October of 2006. And, um, and, and I was pretty well determined. I was never going to pastor again. I was done with ministry. And so um, Bill stands up in front of the crowd, and he goes, says three things to start this meeting out. I'll never forget it. He just looks out at the crowd, and if you ever heard Bill speak, he, he knows the power of the pause. He's not afraid of silence. And he says, Jesus Christ is perfect theology. And I thought to myself, well, that one phrase right there would have saved me years of Bible college. Because I'm a theology major, and nobody ever said that. But suddenly that made all the sense in the world. Then he said, after a long pause, Jesus is the most normal Christian in the Bible. And I thought, I'm a Christian, feel like I'm relatively normal, nothing like Jesus. Okay, two phrases in, and I'm offended, right? <laughs> and then he scans the room after a long pause, looks straight back at where I'm standing, and word for word says, what you know will keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. I feel it like it was yesterday. I stood there and just, my mouth just dropped open and I thought, what? What's happening right now? Afterwards, the pastor of the church says, I want to introduce you to Bill. And I uh, went up to him and he goes, tell him the story of the rain. And, and I had had pastors tell me, don't tell that story. People are going to think you're crazy. And uh, so I told Bill the story of the rain and he just smiled and goes, that sounds like Jesus to me. And I thought, Oh, I found people just as weird as I am. Oh, how cool. And uh, that opened up a world of ministry for us that was amazing. We went over to Hawaii and we started a school of ministry, the very first uh, BSSM school of supernatural ministry that was a satellite of uh, uh, an extension of, of Bethel. And they were making the DVDs at the time and we were their kind of their guinea pig. They were like, here, try to put this out in a church and see if anybody you know, uh, likes it. At the time, Bethel had like 350 students in it. 
And so they gave us the first set of DVDs as they were making them. And so some friends and I over in Hawaii said, okay, let's start a school of ministry. And if we get 20 people in, it'll be successful. And the very first night, we opened it up. This is before Facebook was invented. This is before, I mean, MySpace was the big social media back then, if you remember that trailer park of a mess. So... uh, so uh, we put out just the word, word of mouth. We're doing this school of ministry. Nobody ever really heard of Bethel. At the time, actually, there were five videos of Bill on YouTube, and I had uploaded four of them. I mean, it was weird. It was like, but we were just so hungry for God to use us, to, to, to move through us, being used by God. I mean, we were poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked, and not worthy of anything, but God was actually going to use us in our worthless state. I still didn't understand identity at the time. And uh, um, we start this school the very first night. We're, we're, we're showing a video of Bill teaching, and uh, 210 people showed up to watch that video. And that night, there was a guy named Charlie Maxwell that stumbled in after the lights had gone down, and he comes all the way up to the front. And what I don't know is that Charlie is the spiritual shaman of Maui. He is the only guy that was allowed to put an altar in the state park on top of Haleakala Volcano, and he would go up there once a month in the morning to watch the sun come up and dedicate Maui to the gods and Pele and all that stuff. And so that was Charlie's thing. And he was famous among the the islands. The governor of the state, before they would uh, uh, allow somebody to build on the island, had to get Charlie to come out there and bless the land. And so this guy was was a gatekeeper for Hawaii. And so Charlie had been going to a spa, and this lady who was part of our leadership team was rubbing his feet down one day or something and started to prophesy over him, and he started to buzz on the inside. And so he suddenly said, hmm, she's got spiritual power. He recognized that. And she said, why don't you come to this meeting? We're going to be talking about the things of the Spirit of God. And he was intrigued. Anything going on on his island he wanted to know about. But he had really bad knees, so he came in with two canes. I didn't know Charlie. And he walks up to the front, and he sits down next to the lady that had invited him. And we're watching this video, just a video, a DVD of Bill teaching, and he's just talking about the goodness of God. And all of a sudden, I noticed this large old man stand up in the front and start hopping around like this. I'm like, what's going on? And somebody says, turn on the lights. Like something's happened up in the front. So somebody turns on the lights, and he turns around to face this this packed-out room of people, and they all go, (gasps) that's Charlie. It's Charlie. And I'm like, who's who's Charlie? (laughs) So I walk up with a microphone, and I said, well, what's going on here? And he goes, my knees. My knees are healed. What? Yeah, he says, I don't know who that is or what's going on in here, but... But my knees just got healed. I said, I think, I think it's Jesus. He says, okay, Jesus healed my knees. When Charlie said that, the place went nuts. Like they tore the roof off it. And I'm thinking, I've seen knees get healed. Nobody ever reacts like this. <laughs> the paper got a hold of it. The local paper printed, G- G- Charlie Maxwell attributes healing of his knees to Jesus, which was a big deal for a guy who essentially worshiped you know, false gods. Next thing I know, Charlie's inviting us to the top of the volcano. He's inviting us to his altar. And he, on behalf, he says, on behalf of the Hawaiian people, I, I want to invite you, bring people to come up, and we're going to worship Jesus. And, 
And, and we're going to dedicate the island to Jesus. I'm like, what? The school blows up to over 400 people. And all we're doing is showing videos. We have no idea what we're doing. We're making this stuff up as we go along. Nobody had ever heard of anything like treasure hunting. There was no name for it back then. We just, we just knew of it as prophetic evangelism. We knew that we were prophetic and we were evangelists. We were going to go out and partner with the Holy Spirit of God and get words over people. It's just it. There's actually a group of students one day, five students that said, we want to try to hear God in a new way. So they went down to this little town, this little beach town called Paia. And they sat down and they said, let's try something we've never tried before. Ask God to give you a word or a picture and just, just like write down what you get. And let's just see if those things will like come together to point us to somebody today that God really, really wants to touch. And so the first person goes, uh, I see some like really nappy beach hair. It's a, it's a surf town. That's everybody, right? Somebody else says, I see a light blue t-shirt with a pocket on the left side. Somebody else says, I see white Adidas tennis shoes with the stripes down the side. That's unusual because nobody wears closed-toed shoes in Maui. Somebody else says, I, I see like sheets flapping in the wind. And this last girl goes, I see two lambs laying in a field of flowers. There's no sheep on Maui, so, you know, four out of five, not bad, right? So they write all these clues down. And they, uh, they decide they're going to go out and they're going to, they're going to, you know, look for somebody that meets up with these things. And they minister to various people and some people get healed and they're having a good day. It's not a, it's not a loss or anything, but nothing seems to be adding up with the clues. And finally, as they're finishing the end of their time, they pass by this little Buddhist shrine. It's called a stupa. And people would put gifts and things in front of this. And uh, this girl looks down, and there's a painting in front of this stupa of two lambs laying in a field of flowers. And she goes, that's it. That's the picture that I got. Exactly. And so they start looking around. Well, right next to this Buddhist shrine is a laundromat. They look in the windows of this laundromat, and there's one guy in there. Nappy surf hair, blue pocket tee, wearing Adidas tennis shoes, pulling sheets out of a dryer and going like this, right? They're freaked out. So the, the, when things like that line up, it gives you this incredible confidence and boldness that, hey, God's actually talking here. And so they run in, they go, we're supposed to pray for you. And he's like freaked out, right? Doesn't know how to respond. But they sit him down in a chair, and they all gather around and put hands. Total strangers now lay hands on this guy, and they're going to start praying and prophesying over him. But they're not getting really anything super specific. You know, are, do you know Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you sick at all? You got any problems in your body? No, I feel fine. Any of your family members sick? No, no, we're feeling fine. So he's like, you know, they're like, what is going on here? It's like we've been led to a dead end. The guy really doesn't need anything. As he's sitting in the chair, his friend comes walking in. His friend comes walking in the door, and this kid's, he grew, up, he grew up in the jungle with hippie parents, never been to church a day in his life. Hardly ever watched TV, just surfed every day and worked at Costco. And so he, here, here this guy comes walking in, and he's like, what's going on? And his friend sitting in the chair says, hey, you should let these guys pray for you. This is pretty cool. And so he goes, all right, sits down in the chair. And they put their hands on him, and each one of them starts getting a detailed picture that matches up to a dream that he had had the night before. It's like a Daniel anointing came on these kids, and they just they started like telling him the dream he had had and then telling him what it meant. He ends up face down on the dirty floor of this laundromat giving his heart to Christ. 
So the next night, Monday night, this guy shows up to our school of ministry. And he's like super intrigued. And we have all these students in there, and they're coming back from outreach, and they're talking about all the miracles that happened, broken arms healed, tumors dissolved, all kinds of crazy things happening. And so they're sharing all the testimonies, and and we're going to send people out the next day. And Tuesday night, there's a team that's going to go out. And he goes, he comes up to one of the leaders and goes, I want to go. And this guy goes, can can we let him go? See, I used to put people through six-month discipleship classes. We added a seventh month because six was not a good number. It's not that we had like more material. We just made up more material just so that we could get seven. I mean, that's how religious we were about this stuff. But to me, it's like people needed to go through a long process, right? And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, shut up and let him go. This is how God has to talk to me sometimes. I felt the love on it. I did. Uh, and so, so I thought, okay. Go ahead. You can join that team. And I looked at the the leader and I said, watch him. Keep an eye on him. For all I know, we got to do deliverance here. He doesn't know anything about anything. He met Jesus 24 hours ago, right? So Forrest, he doesn't know anything about anything. He just knows God is real. He met him. His name is Jesus. And Jesus wants to talk to him. The Holy Spirit's on him. He doesn't even know what that means. But God's going to give him impressions in his heart. And so just let, let yourself be moved by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He met Jesus by meeting him by the voice. That's the thing. He met the presence of God, not by intellect, by encounter. Right, So he gets out on the beach. Next thing you know, I get a call from the guy who was leading the team. goes, yeah, it's kind of a weird day. I said, what happened? He goes, yeah, well, the new guy? Yeah, he uh, laid hands on a lady with her arm in a sling. And she got her like, rotator cuff healed. So she like, took the sling off, was moving her arm all around. And then he started giving prophetic words over people. And he was nailing it like 100%. And I'm thinking to myself, I know people been in church for decades who don't feel qualified to do anything for God. This guy meets Jesus 48 hours ago and he's healing the sick and prophesying? Blew my theology out of the water. God took us on a journey at that point that just blew my mind. I I would preach, you know, don't ever get offended at God. Don't ever do guilt and shame. Keep yourself free from offense, much like I talked about last night. And then in 2008, my dad had a stroke. My dad, who was my hero, who had preached the gospel 56 years full-time, see tens of thousands of people come to Christ, had a a stellar ministry full of integrity, and just, I mean, Dad would get up 4 o'clock in the morning, get in the Word of God, and just soak in the Bible. And then he would play the Bible on cassette in the house 24-7. Alexander Scurby reads the scriptures. And those tapes would stretch, and and the tone would get lower and lower and lower. And that's what I grew up with. I mean, I grew up like soaking in the narrative of the Word of God. And, uh, and one day, Dad has this stroke. And it took away his ability to speak, except for five words, five phrases he could say. And for the last five years of his life, this is what he repeated. This is how he ordered food in a restaurant. This is how he communicated when we were sitting down talking. He'd say, yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Yes, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. For the last five years of his life, his entire vocabulary was reduced to nothing but praise. But I wanted my dad back. This didn't make sense to me. I'd seen people get healed. 
like crazy healings. People get out of wheelchairs, blind eyes open, deaf ears pop open. I'd seen everything you could think of to see. We'd saw two dead raisings in Maui. We were having like incredible miracles. And then my dad has this stroke, and I think, this isn't too hard for God. I lay hands on him, command brain matter that's been destroyed to come back together, to cells to be reformed, regenerated, nothing. George and Winnie Banoff come over to the house, lay hands on dad. Heidi Baker prays for dad. Bill Johnson prays for dad. I got all the generals to come around and pray for dad. Nothing. I had children lay that. Maybe it's maybe if it's a child. The faith, let's get the faith of a child. Call all my friends. I had a hundred people come over to the house, pile into our living room, sing worship. Eight hours we do worship. Dad's right there in the middle of it. Teaching, worship, revelation, prophecy. Put dad right in the middle of the hot seat. Nothing. But then offensive things would happen. Offensive stuff like. A friend of my dad's had had a stroke two years earlier, the same kind of stroke that debilitated my dad, debilitated him, and he was paralyzed on one side. He calls up, uh, his, his wife calls up uh, my mom and says, uh, he wants Henry to pray for him. So she puts the phone up to my dad's ear and says, you know, this is your friend, uh, would, you, would you say a prayer for him? And dad says, thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen. And on the other end of the line, I'm sitting there in the living room and I hear this yell. Both of them are shouting because all the feeling came back and he's up dancing around the room. He got totally healed, but my dad didn't. What do you do with that? I'm in Youngstown, Ohio, Victory Christian Center, massive conference, thousands of people in this room, and I'm standing up there and preaching. God TV has just come online. They're broadcasting and live streaming this thing, one of their first live streams, and, and I'm sit, sitting there in the middle of this whole thing, and I feel like God wants to touch somebody's mind, brain injuries, right? That, of course, has to do with things like strokes, and that's a kind of a personal thing for me at the time. So I call out a word of knowledge. A lady all the way in the back row who's on a walker because half her side was paralyzed. She suddenly, I see the walker go flip through the air and she comes running down the aisle. Her family's jumping in the back. I look at her and I say, come here, get up on the stage because I know my mom and dad are watching on live stream back home. And I say, what God did for you, he wants to do for somebody else out there. And of course, you know who I'm thinking of. I say, look right at that camera and I want you just to declare that what happened in you is gonna be released out there. God TV starts getting pinged with all these people that are getting healed from brain injuries. And I step in the background. I still watch the video and I look at it and you can see I do not look happy. Because while she's praying and people are getting healed, I step back and I take my phone out and I call my mom. And I say, mom, what's happening? And she goes, nothing yet, but we're believing. Nothing. What do you do with that? And again, I got offended at God. I now encountered something I didn't understand that challenged my perception of the goodness of God. And that was hard to deal with. So I decided for the last time, I'm done with ministry. I'm out. And I quit. Left it. Walked away. I didn't care if I imploded my entire life and I had to work at McDonald's. This was my way. And without even saying it, and I don't know if this is for somebody this morning. This is not what I plan on talking about here. But my, this was my way of getting back at God for not fulfilling my expectations. 
I know, I know you think, you know, those of us who hold microphones on a regular basis up here have got it all together. But I'm telling you, just when you think you can't get offended at God, something happens that challenges your perception of what can offend you and what can't. And so there I am. What do I do? I'm imploding my life. I don't care what happens. I don't, I mean, it's like Tracy's praying for me. Family's praying for me. I'm, I'm just, I just, I just don't care. And uh, then one day, a dear friend of mine, George Banoff, who he and I had worked together for quite a while, he says, he says, um, he'd just come to town and we would host him and have him at our school of ministry. And, uh, and so I love George and, you know, but we were friends from a distance. He says, uh, I want to do a conference uh, in Austin and I want you to help me out because I know you have a lot of friends in Austin. He says, can you get me a, a couple of churches that would host this conference? They got to be big churches because we're going to have Heidi Baker and various people come in. I said, sure, I'll help you out. I said, I don't want to do anything else, but just, you know, if, if I can drive people to and from the airport, I'll do that. So he goes, okay, okay. So we have Heidi coming in. There's like 1,600 people at this conference. And uh, uh, on a Friday afternoon, I get a phone call. And this phone call is uh, from Georgian's assistant. And he goes, hey, I need you here, like now. And I go, oh, what, what for? And he goes, you're supposed to be here. It's like two in the afternoon. And I was having barbecue with a friend down the road. I wasn't even planning on attending the session. So I walk in, I'm stepping over bodies and the worship team's going on. I walk up to this guy, his name is Rich Brink. And Rich says, says to me, oh, good, I'm glad you're here. He goes, when the worship team gets done, he says, I'll just do a quick introduction. Then you've got it until around, oh, four o'clock. <laughs> and I went, What? Imagine walking into a room with 1,600 people waiting to hear a word from God. You don't feel, qual feel qualified to give anything. You're feeling relatively powerless and offended at God. And somebody hands you a microphone and says, here, take the next two hours. I wasn't terrified. I just didn't care. And I turned to somebody and I said, what's this session supposed to be about? And so, crazy. The person who was supposed to be here missed their flight and can't make it. So, you know, apparently you're you know, you're on, huh? And I go, okay, well, what's the session? They said, it's just prophetic ministry. And I'm like, I don't want to talk to God. I don't. I don't feel like getting up and being the guy that does this all. So I got up and I gave like six minutes worth of material on how to hear from God. Hearing the voice of God 101. I taught it enough where I could just do this in my sleep. But I wasn't feeling it at all. Felt no anointing. I felt no fire, no oil on it at all. I was just giving information. And then I said, you know what? And I did something I'd never done before. I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this today. You are. So I grabbed somebody out of the audience I didn't know. I said, come here. I want you to pick some people. Pick like 30 people you don't know. So he starts picking people. Don't know you, don't know you, don't know you. Pull all these people up on stage. And I said, just scan the crowd. And Ask God to give you a word or a picture, and if he does, you know, tell him what you see and tell him what you hear, and, and then, you know, just let's see what happens. Who knows? And I thought, this is going to be a train wreck, but we're all going down together, you know? <laughs> First guy gets up, and he looks at this guy down here and says, I just see God, and he's touching you. And he said, but I saw him touching you, not just at your head, not just at your chest, but he said, all the way down to your knees. Well, this guy was a former NFL football player. And he gets up and he starts, I thought, man, that's cool. Seeing a knee get healed, that's fun. 
doesn't matter how many times you see it, it's always fun. And so he starts doing deep knee bends, and he comes walking up the front, and he's like, whoa, my knees got healed. This is crazy. And I said, well, the word testimony means do it again. Why don't you see if anybody else in here needs knees healed? This is about how nonchalant I was about it, right? He turns around and says, anybody got knees that need healed? 45 people or so stand up. A bunch of people stand up. So I said, why don't you take all these people over to the corner, pray for them, and he turns to me, and he's like, how? Don't you know Jesus? And he's like, I mean, yeah, sort of. He was a member of the University of Texas football team, played for Detroit, and he came back to town to go to the championship game. And God had arrested him the night before, and he decided to skip the championship game that was that Friday night just to attend. He was just attending. He wasn't playing at the time. But he decided to skip that game and come to this meeting instead, totally like green about, like, what am I doing here, you know? Next thing I know, he's over there. I just said, just, just put your hand on their knees and just say, Jesus heals you. So that's it, right? Just do that. I didn't know. I just made it up. <laughs> Jesus heals you. That's it. Next thing I know, all down this line, people are giving prophetic words. There are people flying back over chairs. There's a little old lady over here that got a whole row of gold teeth. People were snapping pictures of her mouth and calling her gangsta granny. <laughs> It was the freakiest. I'm sitting there looking around going, this is mayhem. Somebody stands up here and goes, I'm just hearing the word fire. And a whole crew of people just fall back and knock chairs over. And I'm like, we got Benny Hinn here? What's going on? <laughs> Next thing I know over here, there's 50 people or so doing jumping jacks. And I look over, and this guy's name is Will. I said, Will, what's going on? He goes, they're getting healed. I said, how many? He goes, all of them. So they start, now they got a whole bunch of people running around the church. They're doing like this Jericho run around the church. People are falling out everywhere. And I'm just standing up there looking kind of like this. <laughs> Getting more and more offended at God. Georgian comes walking in the back and he's like, whoa, oh my goodness, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> This is the best conference we've ever had. The afternoon sessions have always been boring. I've always wanted to be a party. And he walks up to me and goes, goes, uh, where's Bill Hart? And I went, who? That's the host pastor of the church. He goes, yeah, I told Rich that uh, the speaker in the afternoon couldn't make it, so get Bill to do the afternoon session. True story. And suddenly, I realized I wasn't even supposed to be there. <laughs> Got that confusion all cleared up, and Georgian looks at me and goes, this is a God move. Can you do it again tomorrow? I said, George, I don't even know what I did today. He says, doesn't matter. Do it again. Just come in and just let the Holy Spirit flow. So we did, and I ended up working Georgian for, for the Georgian for the next many, many years, watching God work. And people ask a lot of times, how can, you, how can you see moves of God, miracles of God, see the dead raised sequel stuff, and then suddenly get offended and decide not to believe? It's easy. It's not hard. Yeah. Anytime moments of pain and uncertainty hit our lives, we find ourselves in a place of vulnerability. And, uh, and I think of James, Jesus' brother. I'm doing a lot of study on James lately. I wrote this book on grace, and 
when you write a book on grace, you're kind of stuck living it. So uh, then people start challenging you. Hey, can you find grace in James? And I, I started looking at the life of the little brother of Jesus. And you realize that James actually didn't believe in his big brother until after the resurrection. You have to ask yourself this question. How do you grow up in the house of the Son of God and not believe? John chapter 7, James and his brothers come around Jesus and they say, hey, get out to Judea where the feast is at. You want to change the world. Why don't you get out where the world is? When somebody wants to be known, they don't hide themselves, Jesus. And Jesus just responds by saying, yeah, it's not my time yet. John 7 goes on to say that Jesus' brothers just didn't, they didn't believe in him. Why didn't they believe in him? I wondered. I sat down and thought about this thing for a while. See, it appears that Jesus, when he was living at home, didn't do much in the way of the supernatural. Didn't do a lot of miracles. The only miracle we have any hint that he did comes from the very first time that we see Mary put a demand on him. And the demand is, hey, worth this wedding? Everybody is hammered drunk because they've drunk all the wine they had. Will you please make more? You, you got to be thinking, Jesus is going, look, mom, making wine for drunk people is not the way for anybody to start a ministry. Trust me, this is not going to go well for me. People are still going to be arguing about this 2,000 years from now. <laughs> but the question I have is, how could she know he could do it unless he'd already done it at home? I mean, the angel said he's the son of God. I'm not sure what else he can do, but he makes a mean Cabernet. I mean, he's a spice up a meal. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Why would Jesus' little brothers, why would his siblings not believe in him? Maybe they didn't know. Oh, sure they knew. Jesus knew who he was by the age of 12. He says, I must be about my father's business. He knew who his dad was, and he knew what his assignment was. He was on mission, and he knew it. Mary had heard the word from the angel. She knew that she bore the Son of God. She knew the circumstances around that birth. Even Joseph had had an angelic encounter and had gotten convinced. Mom and Dad knew this. Don't you think they would have let the rest of the family know? Listen, I need to tell you something about your older brother, Jesus. So think about James. Yeah, my big brother, he's the Son of God. Yeah, what do you do? Nothing. I'm just James. What does he do? Not really sure. See, when Jesus goes home in Mark chapter 6 to his hometown, he can barely do anything because of the unbelief of the people. Because they look at him and they go, what? We know this guy. Where did he get the power to do this stuff? Which tells us that as he's growing up for 30 years in that community, he didn't do anything to miraculously stand out at all. And this gives us a little bit of a hint, perhaps, as to why James doesn't believe. Because don't you imagine in 30 years' time that maybe some things happen, like you get sick, you get hurt, somebody's dying, maybe Joseph is dying, maybe dad is dying, maybe a family member is, is ill, and you look at the Son of God and go, hey, do something Son of Godish," And he doesn't. The only reason I can think of why Jesus' little brother would not believe him 
in him is the same reason why there were times, even in my own life and my ministry, where I found it hard to believe. And that is, he wasn't fulfilling my expectations. And I imagine it was the same for James. When James finally does believe, after the resurrection, and he writes his letter, he doesn't open it with James, the brother of Jesus. He just simply says, James, a bondservant of God. He doesn't lean on his kinship to Jesus as an authority for his ministry. He just goes, you know what? Here's the place I'm in. I'm a servant of God. What does that mean? I've lost my ability to have an opinion that is separated from the will of my father. Because if I lean on my own understanding, I won't be able to stand very long. Because there's a lot of things going on in this world that I don't have an answer for. And, they, and they're blowing up my expectations about what God can do or will do. And here's the thing about God. It's not that he's not good. He's better than good. But the thing is, is his ability to redeem our worst moments is the thing that makes him good. It's not, it's not that God keeps us free from pain and keeps us free from suffering that makes him good. It's the fact that he steps into our pain with us. He doesn't leave us alone in the valley of the shadow of death. In the darkest moment of the valley of the shadow of death, Jesus shows up to join in our pain with us to show us that death is really nothing but a shadow. That's where he finds us. He finds us in the valleys. My dad passed away. It was in South Dakota. We had finally placed him in a a nursing home reluctantly and and uh, mom just couldn't take care of him anymore and and uh, it was January January 10th almost 10 years ago nine years ago and uh, it was freezing cold you guys up here understand cold so do South Dakotans and the snow was piled up to the windows of the nursing home and the windows were the kind of windows where you you turn the handle and you push the whole window out to open it up and I'm sitting in the room with my dad, and that's the night dad is going to pass away. And we know the time is short. Mom's at the house, and we put in a call to her, and she's coming in. Dad is rapidly declining. I'm saying, hang on, Dad. Mom will be here in a second. I'm sitting there by myself, and I get a call from Georgian and Winnie Banoff. They're over in Hawaii on vacation, but they hear that dad is passing away, and they love my father. And so they said, put, put us on speaker, Bill. We just want to, like, sing and laugh over your dad. All right, George. So I put on speaker and I lay it on the bed and I sit down in the room. And for about a half an hour, 40 minutes or so, it was a long time, George and Winnie prayed and sang and laughed and read scripture over my dad. Amazing moment. I'm sitting in the room and all of a sudden I notice it is uncomfortably hot in here, like really warm. And it's below freezing outside. It is like seven degrees outside. So I go up to the thermostat on the wall, and I like turn it down, down, down. Finally, I turned it off, and I'm thinking, what is going on? No, there's no heat coming out of the vents. I close the door to the hallway. It's still getting hotter in this room. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to crack the window just a little bit and let a little cool air in here and kind of cool it off because, man, I'm just sweating. It's crazy hot in here. I go and I crack the window and I had to push the snow away from the edge of the window, just 
you know, use the window to push the snow away. And I opened up the window big enough to stick my head outside and take a breath. That's how hot it was in the room. I was just like miserably hot. And I sit down in the chair with my back to the open window, and I listen to George and Winnie continue to laugh, pray, and sing, and read. And pretty soon, they get done. It's a beautiful moment. Mom comes in the room. I, I pick up the phone, shut the phone off. We sit there, and we pray over Dad. Oh, I fall asleep. Before my mom gets there, I fall asleep. And I'm asleep for a good half hour. When I wake up, I suddenly have this startling realization. I didn't close the window and it's still hot in the room. And I thought, God, what are you doing? Mom comes in the room, I reach over and I close the window. And she comes around dad's bedside, here come the hospice nurses, they come around for the next few hours, we just sang and prayed over dad. As my dad took his last breath, a sheen of gold covered the burgundy blanket that was over him. Weirdest thing. So much so that the director of the nursing home comes into dad's room and you're not allowed to have glitter in the nursing home because it's a choking hazard. And so he looks down and he sees all this gold and he says, who brought this in here? And he starts apologizing going, I'm so sorry, this is not supposed to be in here. He says, I, I, don't, I don't know where we got this blanket from. And I said, don't worry about it. I, 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 don't, think, I don't think it's anybody here. <laughs> Mom's touching the blanket. There's like sparkling gold all over. I don't know what to do with that. People always ask, what do you make of that stuff? I don't know. I didn't do it. <laughs> Why does that happen? I don't know. They're wheeling Dad out. And by the time they left the room, got outside, the gold was gone. And you know glitter. It wasn't glitter. glitter glitter's the herpes of craft supplies. Come on. You know what I'm saying? people all the time. You can't fake the glory with glitter. You can't vacuum that up. You know? So, uh, so here's, here's what I know. Here's kind of the story as it, as it ends now. And I didn't even get a chance to preach yet. Oh, we still got time. Good. Um, you, you, may, you may feel like you're in a place in time where like Peter, you go, I'll never leave you. Anybody else may deny you, and I'll never leave you. But I tell you, you will face situations in life that will question your perception of the goodness of God or cause you to question the goodness of God. And, and when that happens, thankfully, we have social media these days, and we have wonderful ways to reach out. Hey, when that happens, if that ever happens, would you reach out and tell me? I'll pray with you, and I'll stand with you because I've been there. Even if you feel like i got a powerful ministry and I've seen so much, I'll never doubt again. If and when it happens, I know you can call me up and I know you can call Penn up. I know you can call these guys up, people who are leaders in this church, and you know what? They won't condemn you and they won't judge you. They'll actually stand with you and walk with you right through the middle of the valley because God doesn't leave us in the valley. He brings us out. It's amazing how that works. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I really wanted to talk about sound some more this morning. Do this really quick with me, and then let's do some Q&A. You guys up for that? Hopefully between tonight, uh, th or I'll answer all the questions that you've got, um, but I don't want to answer your questions. I actually want to give you more. That's what God does with me. He doesn't answer my questions. He questions my answers and then gives me new questions. 
So, you know, whenever I'm in that place of surrendering to the presence of the Lord, this is the way I feel. God, I got some questions. And he's like, yeah, I'll give you revelation on that. Oh, listen, before you go, here's a couple more questions for you. And I walk away knowing less than I did before. So the longer you walk with God, the less you know. I think that's how we become childlike. Turn, turn to Colossians chapter 1, would you? Colossians chapter 1. Goodness, I haven't told I haven't told that story in so so long. That felt kind of good. Thank you. Starting in verse thirteen, he rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all, everybody say all, all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of the Father and holds all things together by the word of his power or the power of his word. If we look at everything that exists on a subatomic level, you discover that, that everything is molecules and atoms and it's, it's a nucleus surrounded by protons and neutrons which are spinning super fast and each one of them has a frequency held together literally by sound. Sound. As a matter of fact, everything that you see that looks solid is more nothing than something. It's more empty space than substance. My hand is more empty space than substance. So is this pulpit. I have a cousin that works at MIT, much smarter than I. I say to him, hey, why does my hand not pass through this pulpit when I slap it like that? You know what smart people say? We don't know. No idea. Well, the Bible says all things are held together by him, in him, for him, through him, and they're held together by the power of his word. Now, the Bible also says that he rejoices over us with singing. So literally, the entire physical universe is held together by the song of God. Your very existence in whom we live and move and have our being is actually all the symphony of the voice of God. That's who you are. God's singing over us, and those songs have lyrics. What are the lyrics of the song that God has been singing over you from before the foundation of the world? Psalm 139, David said, he goes, oh Lord, you've searched me, you know me, you know every time I sit down, stand up, you know my lying down, you understand every time I lay down, and my, I, you encompass my path, my lying down, you're acquainted with all of my ways. There's not even a word on my tongue that you already, you already know it. You've hedged me in behind me, before me, you've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is so wonderful for me. It's so high, I can't attain unto it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from from your presence. David, in the old covenant, gets a revelation that goes like this. Where do I go to get away from you? Everywhere I go these days, people are like, how do I get closer to God? I go, I don't know. Why don't you get a revelation that David got? How in the world do I get away from you? 
I realize I can't. And then he gives us a couple of theological difficulties. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. What? If I take the wings of the morning and I settle in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. And if I say, you know what, I'll just wait for the sun to go down. Surely darkness will cover me. No, it won't. It'll be like light about me. It's all pretty much the same to you. Oh, well, I'll praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> He's just coming to the conclusion that I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but wow, you're way better than I thought. And how many of you know that David lived a life that was filled with moments of passion for God and turning away from God? God called David a man after his own heart. Here's the thing. God's not afraid of your journey. He's not afraid of your journey. David comes up with this reality where he goes, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sand. Now, I'm no expert in sand, but we do live in Florida, which essentially is one giant sandbar held together by Disney magic or something. I don't know. So one day I decided I'm going to go out in my yard. I'm going to take a pinch of sand. I'm going to put it on the table and I'm going to see how many grains are in one pinch of sand. So I take this pinch and I put it up there and I grab a fork and I just, you know, one by one and I start counting out grains of sand. I got to 200 and got bored because I barely made a dent in my pinch of sand. And suddenly I felt the Holy Spirit. I'm thinking, why am I even doing this? This is crazy. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, you know, Bill, forget your yard or Florida or even the Sahara Desert. If you would just believe 10 grains of sand worth what I believe about you, just 10. Forget all the deserts on earth, just 10 grains of sand. If you would begin to believe just 10 grains of sand worth of what I believe about you, it would change the way you see yourself and everybody around you. suddenly realized so much of our journey has to do with a perspective of a twisted version of the goodness of God. And this is the danger of sin. This is why sin is such a dangerous thing. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and Adam and Eve sinned, they begin to hide from, from God. But why are they hiding? They never needed to hide. He'd never done anything mean or, or wrath-filled or angry before. He'd never hurt, punished, or destroyed anything. But the minute that they sinned, it didn't change how God felt about them. It changed how they saw him. And they begin to hide themselves from the one who ultimately would be their redeemer. So the sound of God literally holds all things together, but the sound is more than you can just hear with your ears. And this is what I really wanted to talk to you guys about today. Last night I talked about the power of the sound, stewarding the sound. But today I want to talk about the other side of the equation because the thing of the sound of God has to do with the Spirit of God, and it doesn't always have to be spoken. Sometimes the sound of God, it originates primarily within your spirit. It's not just what you say, it's what is in your blood. And what is in your blood radiates out from among you, uh, from within you. It's, it's kind of like this. Did you ever ask yourself this question? I had somebody ask me this a while back. Bill, how did Satan become the god of this world, small g? And so I went back to the story in Genesis. 
And in the story in Genesis, when Adam and Eve have an encounter with the devil, Satan, the serpent, and the serpent says, eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like God. Well, whose image and likeness were they already made in? God's. They already had that. The serpent did then the same tactic that he does now. And that is to try to convince you that you can obtain through works what you have freely been given by grace. In other words, I'm going to give you something to do to get that. The problem is when you try to work for what you already have, the truth is you can never work enough. And that's what's called getting put on the hamster wheel of religious effort. And that's the thing oftentimes that discourages us the most is when we're trying to get closer, work to get closer to a God who's taken up residence within us. See, nothing you get from God in this Christian life is going to come through striving. It'll come through surrender. People say, well, I fasted, and I fasted, and I prayed. And then I finally just, it's like I couldn't do it anymore. I came to the end of my strength, and boom, there was breakthrough. I said, you know that little period where you came to the end of your strength and there was breakthrough? That's called surrender. And if it took you working to get there, great. But if you'll start there, you'll save yourself a lot of time. Because most of our fasting, if it's not provoked and prompted and graced by the Spirit of God, is nothing more than a hunger strike to get God to fulfill our expectations. Figured that one out a long time ago. So Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very first thing that happens is they judge each other and themselves. They look at each other and go, whoa, we're not wearing any clothing. They sew fig leaves together and boom, the fashion industry is born. God shows up and he asks two questions. First thing he says is, Adam, where are you? Which, hey, if God can't find you, you know you're lost, right? So, Adam, where in the world are you? And then he says, who told you you were naked? And the word naked means lacking. It's lacking in a way where I'm responsible to fill up in myself for what I'm lacking. So I now have to do the work. And God looks at him and says, who convinced you you were lacking in anything? All deception, by the way, that you ever face in this Christian life will first be tied to a perception of lack. When you stop seeing him as El Shaddai, our all-sufficient one, our provider, Jehovah Jireh, all deception you face in this life will be tied to a perception of lack. Now, God comes to Adam and Eve, and this is how Satan became the God of this world. He comes to Adam and Eve and the serpent, this trio of folks who have now everything has gone seriously wrong. And the first one that God addresses is really important because he's the one that has the dominion. Adam was given the dominion and the authority to steward and to rule in this earth. And so God doesn't talk to Eve. He doesn't talk to the serpent first. He goes to Adam, and he says, essentially, Adam, what happened here? And Adam now has a choice. He's at a crossroads. He can choose to take responsibility. He can just simply stand there and say, yes, you're right. It was my fault. He can agree with God and take responsibility. But he doesn't do that. He chooses option number two. And he turns and goes, the woman you gave me, it's her fault, right? What he does is he partners with judgment and blame. The minute he does this, the authority that he carried, he gives away. This is what judgment does, by the way. 
Anytime you ever part, and this is why I talked about last night, if you partnered with judgment and offense in this last season, this is a super dangerous posture to take because you'll never feel spiritually weaker than when you partner with judgment and blame. Adam partners with judgment and says, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. The authority now passes, and you can see this in God's attention. He shifts his attention from Adam to Eve, and he essentially says, what happened? She has the exact same crossroads moment. She can take responsibility, but this is what she does. The serpent tricked me. And when she does that, what does she do? Partners with judgment and blame, takes the authority and the dominion that was rightfully hers and passes it along. The serpent now gets the attention of God. God starts speaking. Do you know what the serpent does? Nothing. Nothing. The serpent stays silent. And in silence, essentially says, yeah, it's my fault. I'll take responsibility. Thank you very much. Assumes the authority and becomes the God, small g, of this world. Mechanics of how we lost our identity wasn't just about us eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was about us not taking the authority that was rightfully ours to take it back. Not only did we give up our identity, we gave up our authority too. So now we found ourselves both lost and powerless. And now the devil wreaks havoc in the world. But we fast forward to Jesus. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And you remember one day he's standing before the religious and political leaders of his day. The religious leaders especially, because that represented the people that he was first to go to. And as he's standing before them, they say things like this. You say you're the son of God. That's the rumor. Is that true? You claim God is your father. You know that can get you killed, right? Is it true? Why isn't he saying anything? Why isn't he talking? Let's make him talk. They hit him. They spit him. They punch him. They attack his identity by literally yanking his beard out. What does Jesus do? He doesn't say a word. In silence, he exercises authority and dominion and takes it back. Everything that they're saying about him, he just in silence lets it come, takes that authority, goes to the cross, goes to the grave, goes to hell and gets the keys of death and hell, raises from the dead in newness of life and says this phrase, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Yeah. Guess what he says then? Now you go. Okay, don't you think the previous 4,000 years of human history would have taught the Lord that we probably shouldn't have any power and authority? <laughs> like, these people haven't learned nothing. And yet, this is what he does. All authority. And here's the thing. It's a mathematical equation. If he has all, apparently somebody has none. Say, don't you believe in spiritual warfare? No, I believe in spiritual joy fare. You have way more fun, you get way more done. I got a 12-hour teaching on spiritual joy fare out there. I'm going to give you all 12 hours in three words. Ready? Demons hate joy. 
Demons hate joy, and so do religious people. So when you gather together with other believers, like seriously, just purpose in your heart to get happy because it makes it so much easier for us to tell you and the demon-possessed people apart. <laughs> See, sometimes the authority and the dominion that you carried is exercised in sound. Sometimes it's exercised in silence. And the Holy Spirit will teach you the difference and when to operate in both. So in the last few minutes of this session here, I can't imagine that all of this hasn't generated a question or two or 10. So I wanna do something kind of dangerous. I like to do this in daytime sessions. Let's do some Q&A. Let's have a conversation and hammer some of this stuff out. Because I want to see you guys walking out of here in the power of the Spirit. And then tonight we're going to do a full-on, crazy, cool, prophetic activation. If that's okay. All right. Anybody got any questions at all? Any, can anybody identify with this thing of walking through, like, the valley of the shadow? Know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I admitted that, I, and I still I'm still on a journey. I'm still on a journey. Um, my son Britton, are we recording and streaming this this morning? Good, not streaming. Good. All right. So let me get candid with you. My son Britton, he's 27 years old. He makes video games out in California. He makes a lot of money and he does very well. He and his wife live out there he suddenly decided he just doesn't need God in his life anymore. And actually, it was the death of his grandfather that he prayed for for five years, like growing up, that really kind of kicked him in the teeth. And I understand totally where he's coming from. But he decided that he's just done. He's done. He, all of his expectations got blown. And God didn't come through. And yet, my son has been out on the streets and, and seen people get out of wheelchairs on the streets. I've seen him operate in prophetic power that's unbelievable. He got his eyes healed, radically healed. He used to wear thick glasses, felt the Holy Spirit. And yet he decides, you know, it's the power of the universe and kind of went off into Eastern mysticism and all that stuff. That's my son. He grew up with the scriptures. He grew up with Veggie Tales, DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline. That was his menu. That was his diet. I, I, did the, I, I decided in my parenting to do what God was unwilling to do, and that is I wanted to control his choices. I gave him options. They were all good. No bad options, only good ones. And so, as Danny Silk told me, oh, basically, you just trained him to live in a world that doesn't exist. And that's true. I wish I could go back and change a lot. But he and I have a wonderful, wonderful relationship. And, uh, and I'm just saying, this is the journey I'm on right now, because I pray for my son every day. Tracy and I make this a point, but it's not a prayer of like begging God to do something. We know what's in his heart to do. Here's what I'm always hearing from God. I got him. Yeah, that doesn't give me much hope when I see what he posts online. No, I got him. It's the word I got from the Lord one day. I said, I said, my son, it's like his allegiance is, is to the devil. And I felt the Lord say, the devil's a thief. 
How long does a thief get to have something in his possession before it legally becomes his? Never. Devil doesn't own anything or anybody. I'm like, yeah, but look what he's doing. And then the Lord takes me to the prodigal son story where the son goes to the father and goes, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. Give me my inheritance now. That's, you get an inheritance when somebody dies. So the son goes, essentially, give me my inheritance now. In other words, I'd like to go ahead and like just pretend you're dead. And the father does it. And he lets his son take the journey without condemnation. No condemnation. He lets the son take the journey. And the father takes the posture at the door of the house on the porch, watching the horizon. Why? Because even though the son tries not to be a son, the father never stops being a father. When the son comes home, his perception of the goodness of dad is so warped, all he thinks that dad will let him do is be a servant in the house, if that at all. But the dad has never stopped being a dad, and his son has never stopped being a son in his own mind. Colossians 1 actually goes on to say that we were enemies of God in our mind, not in his, in ours. And uh, what does God do with his enemies? He loves them because he doesn't command us to do anything he himself is unwilling to do. And so when the son comes home, this is what dad does. He doesn't have to go looking for the robe and the ring. The way Jesus tells the story, he's already got him. And he runs and he tackles the kid. Before he can even get his repentance speech out of his mouth, he's restored. The repentance speech is a byproduct of the restoration. It's like, this thing is really out of order. He puts the robe on him. He puts the ring on him. He, he says, strike up the band, get the music going, crank up the barbecue, because God likes barbecue. Uh-huh. And then the older brother, who did it all right, calls dad outside. And says, he won't go into where dad is. He wants dad to come to him. And he says, hey, I've been here the whole time. You've never done this to me. And the most tragic line in the entire story is when the father looks at the son and says, all this has always been available to you. And it finishes the story with the elder brother. We don't see him going in to dance with dad. Why does the father let the son take a journey to the hog pen of life without any condemnation? Because the father has one goal in mind. He wants to dance with his son. That's it. I just want to dance with my son. And I think uh, it's what God's been teaching me a lot about my son. It's like, what do you want? I don't care if he ever preaches a sermon again in his life. I don't, I, I don't care what he does for the Lord. I, as a father, just want to dance with my kids. And I want to celebrate with my kids. That's it. So my son and I have this beautiful relationship, and I do a, a podcast. I was invited to do a podcast for Charisma. It's called the Reckless Grace Podcast. And two weeks ago, uh, Britton and I had a two-hour conversation where we talk about everything that they won't allow you to talk about on Charisma. Whew. I was sure Steve Strang was going to call me up after that podcast and go, yeah, you know, this ain't working out. But I have gotten hundreds of responses from both kids and parents going, Thank you for having that conversation. Because it's a father and a son who don't agree, but love each other dearly. And, uh, and you can hear it in the conversation. It's raw, it's crazy, it's authentic. It's not really safe for kids, but it's real. It's where my son is at. And he talks about feeling the power of God. He talks about getting healed. He talks about the things he saw. 
It's really raw. It's really interesting. I got a, I got a, a response from, I've even got a response from children of ministers saying thank you for having that one child of a very prominent minister whose parents, if I'd said the, their name, you would all know who it is. But she, she became so discouraged because her parents put ministry over her that she started cutting herself. And I've never seen more scars on a body in my life than this, this amazing young lady has. She went into addiction, rehab, all kinds of crazy stuff. And her dad said, as long as you're doing this stuff, you're not even my daughter. And I know this guy. He and I have done conferences together. Love and respect him dearly, but when it came to his own family, had no idea how to, how to be the father's heart to a child who is absolutely hurting. I got another re response from a young lady whose dad, every single one of you in here would know, walked away from God, and her parents pushed her out, so we will not want anything to do with you anymore. And she responded and says, I wept for two hours during that podcast. I just want to have that conversation with my dad. I'm really feeling like this whole thing of unity is restoring the heart of the Father back to the kids these days. This, this thing of releasing the sound of heaven is supposed to release something into the earth that lets the young people know, oh my goodness, you're loved. You're loved and the Father's house has doors that have been taken off the hinges. You are free to come home. Because even if you've tried not to be a son, tried not to be a daughter, the Father has never stopped being a father. Never stopped. Unity, by the way, when I say unity, don't get scared of that word. Unity is an agreement. You understand? Unity has nothing to do with agreement. Unity is not when you agree with me and I agree with you. Unity is when we're willing to lay our lives down for one another, whether we agree with each other or not. Unity is where love covers a multitude of sins, sin that would separate you and me where love trumps that, and pretty soon I, I begin to realize I'm willing to lay my life down for you whether you agree with me or not. That's unity. Unity begins at the heart of one. You don't need somebody else in order to be united. All you need to do is not give them permission to be your enemy. You see this modeled in the life of Jesus more than anything else. And that is that on the cross, Jesus in sacrificial compassion lays his life down for a world that is in complete disagreement with him. And the result of his life laid down, sacrificial compassion, is that you and I were reconciled back to the heart of the Father again. 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our transgressions against us, has now given to us that same exact ministry of reconciliation. But as long as we define unity as agreement, then we'll make our, our entire goal trying to argue other people into our perspective. And when it becomes a battle of argument, then there's always a winner and always a loser. But Jesus... He surrenders himself fully to our wrath. It's not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's God in the hands of angry sinners who in the midst of our wrath redeems us and reconciles us to the Father when we were so confused we didn't even know what was going on. At our worst, that was his posture. That was his heart for us. Maybe some of your kids, some of your friends, some of your family, some of the people that are closest to you have walked away from God and it hurts your heart. My prayer is that God will remove the wrath out of your heart toward them and replace it with a love that makes you a living invitation for them to come back to the place of being reconciled to the Father's heart again.
Here's my journey, and I'm still on it. And that is to become so unoffendable. That I don't have anything left in me but just to love. I, I, I don't know what else there is. That's my journey, to learn to love, really. Because I think maybe if there's any one question that we get asked in heaven, it's that. Did you learn to love? And uh, my son is teaching me how to do that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's two, two aspects to it as I see it. One is divine health and the other is divine healing. I think divine health has been a gift to us that we're supposed to learn how to walk in so that we have the grace on our life to release divine healing to the world. Divine healing is an invitation for people to know what God is like. Now, Jesus never used healing as an evangelism tool. He didn't demand anything of anybody who got healed. And I think a lot of times people these days would say, well, I'm okay with healing as long as it's bringing people to Christ. That's not ever the way that Jesus did it. And it's not that he didn't want people to come to him. But healing wasn't an evangelism tool. It was simply an expression of love. In other words, Jesus was going to heal people whether they accepted him or not, just because that's what he's like. And so I think we're literally meant to walk in divine health so that we can release divine healing. A part of last night, and I didn't give you this punchline, but I'll do it now since you asked this question. Part of last night is, is a key to healing, I think, I believe, because I've seen it happen a lot um, this way. Remember last night we talked about how what is in your blood when it's released from the sound, which sound and spirit in you are connected, when it's released from who you are, when you carry in your blood the word, the love, the heart of the Father, and it's released from within you, it has an impact upon the earth, the atmosphere of this physical world around you. In other words, things that are wrong are suddenly set right. What are you made of? Earth. Learning how to steward the sound is literally learning how to steward an atmosphere of divine health all around you. A regenerating atmosphere of supernaturally charged divine health. We're releasing a sound that doesn't just have an impact on the world around us. It has an impact upon the earth that we are made of. Think about what cancer is for a second. Cancer is when your body goes to war with itself. It's cells literally attacking each other. It's a battle happening inside of your body. What is peace? Peace is the release from dis-ease, disease. The Prince of Peace, as he manifests in our body, suddenly there's a peace released that suddenly puts us at ease. Now there's no more dis-ease in our body. Healing is literally the shalom of heaven coming upon us. When we learn how to steward the sound, we are literally living in a constant atmosphere of the shalom of heaven. It's, it's the fullness of, of a transformative, uh, uh, like this, let's say it like this. I'm doing a conference down at a Life Center in Harrisburg years and years ago, a Supernatural Life Conference. And I'm up and I'm speaking, I'm just talking about the goodness of God. I wasn't even talking about healing, I was just talking about how good he is, how saved you are, how forgiven you are, how loved you are. And in the middle of it all, I feel the Holy Spirit say, I'm healing people, pay attention, Bill. And I stopped and went, whoa, 
if you got any measurable condition that you walked in, pain, chronic pain, tumors, whatever, check and see if it's there right now. And, and, if, and if it's gone, like if you can tell that God's touched you and you're healed, go ahead and like stand up. And the first guy to get healed has a tumor on the back of his neck. And the guy sitting behind him goes, whoa, because he watches this thing literally shrink right before his eyes. And the guy puts his hand back here to see if it's there and then stands up with his, with his hand like this. And within a minute, we counted about 60, 65 people that had creative miracles happen in the room. And afterwards, I said to Bill Johnson, I said, I said, what happened in there? I wasn't even talking about healing, and suddenly all these people got healed. And he goes, what were you talking about? I said, the goodness of God. And he goes, well, what did you expect to manifest? <laughs> oh, the sound that I was releasing started showing up in the room. The sound that I felt led, I guess, to release this morning wasn't what I had planned, but the sound that I released this morning was the sound that maybe took hearts that have actually begun to walk in a vulnerable place of offense towards God and uh, released an invitation for you to surrender back to the heart of the Father and say, I don't understand, but he's good anyway. Because one moment of redemption can erase years of confusion. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think we're meant to live in divine health so we can release divine healing. We used to, we used to measure these things, though, in Maui one year. In one year, we recorded over 2,000 healing miracles that happened. Like Dick, Dick uh, took down all of the names and, I mean, dictated their testimonies and all that stuff to where we could contact them, get doctor's reports if we could, because we wanted to verify everything. And uh, some, I mean, stunning miracles. I go back through that list of things and just a whole notebook of healings. And I'm like, wow, I remember that one and that one. And quite a few of them I was actually present for and in the room for. And I was just like blown away. Every time I saw it, I was blown away. But here's one thing we discovered about healing. Uh, I would say that when we prayed for people in church, one out of 10 would have some measurable difference. Something would happen to one out of 10. When we prayed for people out on the streets, nine out of 10. That was interesting. That's one of the things we would mark. Did we pray for these people? Or did we minister to these people in church or in a church service or out on the streets? Nine out of 10 times, 90% of the time, you could see people on the streets get healed. 10% of the time in church. So what do you do with that? I don't know. It's God's way of saying, get it out of the building, I guess. Um, that was a big deal. Here was another one. We found out that... Um, most of the time when people would come forward for healing, they would be brought by other people. In other words, we brought you here to get healed. And because our church in Hawaii became known as a place that was like a healing center, people would come to get healed all the time. And, uh, and we have people that develop their own methodologies for like releasing healing over people. We had this one guy from Great Britain. He was so funny, this old guy. And uh, we've been talking about sound and all this stuff. And somebody like has a problem in their abdomen. He'd get right down in their belly like this and go... Hear the word of the Lord. Like that way, like, whoa, you know, and then they get healed. It was weird. It's like, <laughs> it's like, you feel led to do that? No, not really. That's your thing, you know. And it worked, worked for them. But here's what we discovered. When family members or friends would come up with the person and they'd surround them, typically they look so sad. That's my friend. And, he, and it's like the person being prayed for is way more calm than the family around them. Like they're bearing the burden that this person seems to have a grace for. 
And so they look all sad, and it's like, and when they'd pray, man, they'd like squint their eyes and like go after it like, God, if you don't do this. And nobody would say that, but you could see that as the look on their face, as if they're making a deal with God. Like, like you got to do this. Do this as a testimony to the doctors. Do this as a testimony to their unsaved relatives. And, and really like working all the angles. One day we're praying for somebody down in the front of the church, and I felt like the Lord said, would you move their family away from them? And I thought, that was weird, because nobody wants them healed more than the family. So I said to one of our leaders, I said, would you take that group of people? And it's like, let's see if we can just like move them about 20 feet over here. Let's just pray and pray for them. And let just, let's just leave them alone. When they got over there and they got their attention off of the sickness that was on this person, boom, the breakthrough happened. And suddenly the family runs back over and they're like, what, what, what? And then they were disappointed that they weren't standing there. It was like weird. I don't know why that worked that way. But maybe it's because people carry unbelief in their bargaining with God on that stuff. I don't know. And all I know is if you can move unbelief out of the room, cool stuff happens. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I got theories, but I don't know if I believe any of them. <laughs> I hope that helps. Uh, if you go to uh, my website, BillVanderbush.com, there's a link on there to Reckless Grace Podcast. I do two podcasts. One is a Bible study podcast every week, and the other one is the Reckless Grace Podcast, which is more storytelling. And you know, one one week I just sat and told crazy church stories. I don't know. People like that stuff. Weird. Uh, yeah. The. Uh, uh, let me do this. I'll leave you with this in the last four minutes of this day. Um, I, f I feel like God, is, um, God has been teaching me something this year about, like I got really, it's kind of to answer your question about like this thing of healing, but I, I've been praying for an awakening for the next generation. This has been a thing for me lately. Is I was a youth pastor for six years when I first started in ministry, and so I have a real heart for young adults in the next generation. And I was standing um, before a, a crowd of young people, a um, large crowd of young people uh, in Abilene, Texas, uh, not too long ago. And I, I looked out at them. They were just, I mean, they were, they were pressing into God, but you could see they were angry. And a lot of them have been going through something that's, been kind of a hot button word these days called deconstruction, right? I mean, if you know what I'm talking about, you've heard this a lot. Okay. And this is the picture that suddenly the Lord gave me. And it was, um, and this is for the church. This is for young people in the church. And I saw him holding a sledgehammer and they were just sledging religion, just nailing religion. And they were getting cheers for it. And I said, I see you holding a sledgehammer, but God's saying, I want to take that sledgehammer out of your hand. You're done sledging religion because your deconstruction is now turned into destruction. And, and, and you don't need any skill to do that, by the way. But God wants to take the sledgehammer out of your hand. He wants to replace it with a framing hammer. And that framing hammer is used to build something, not destroy stuff. And God is asking you, what are you going to build? The Lord is saying, what are you going to build with me now? And in order to build, it means you're going to have to be willing to let people who know how to build speak into your life, which means you're going to have to be vulnerable and teachable and get sons and daughters to get fathers and mothers and connect back together as family. 
and learn from them how to build. Because it takes zero skill to demolish something, but it does take skill to build. Right? And here's the thing about a wise builder. A wise builder can go into a building that does need to be torn down and look around and go, we don't need to destroy that because it has value and it can be repurposed in what we're going to build. And so that's what the Bible talks about, that, that, that those who carry wisdom in the things of God know how to take treasures out of the old and the new to pull them together and to realize that not everything that's been done in the past is bad. So right now we're going through a reformational period of time where it seems like everything we have been believing has been thrown out on the lawn, like a big giant rummage sale. And basically, every, this happens every 500 years in the body of Christ. In 50, uh, 1517, Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. We just had three and a half years ago, the 500th anniversary of that Reformation happened. So we are, by the way, in the middle of a Reformation right now. And this is it. The body of Christ has thrown everything we believe out on the lawn. It's called deconstruction. And so now, basically, God is saying, what are you going to pick up to carry into the future with? If we pick up what is of us, what is our own making, then the body of Christ institutionalizes, memorializes, and dies in denominationalism. But if we lay hold of what is of God to carry into the future, we are positioned and poised to bring revival to the next generation. So revival happens when you are conscious and aware of the presence of God. And revival in large scale happens when more people are conscious and aware of the presence of God. And when you get a lot of people together that are conscious of the presence, then you have a movement. Stand with me. Let's go ahead and just pray into this today. So, Father, we thank you that you're bringing us to an awareness of your presence. You're taking the sledgehammer out of the hands of the body of Christ and replacing it with a framing hammer. So, God, bring people and voices into our lives that teach us to build. And, Lord, I just I believe right now that what you're saying is Wellspring has done that and is doing that. You are part of a movement and I know very little about this movement. I've not read Penn and I've not read any of your books. But as I was just like hearing people talk about the impact you've had on their life, I realize what you're doing is handing out framing hammers. You've been doing this for years and years and years. And many of you have a framing hammer in your hand because somebody has been a father to you to hand it to you. And so, Lord, I just thank you for blessing and favoring moves of your spirit that are teaching people how to build with you. And Lord, I just speak grace to those who are walking through a deconstruction right now, who are in that moment of just disillusionment. Father, you're not disillusioned with us. You've never had any illusions in the first place. So Lord, I pray that you would pour out upon them a clarity, knowing that it's time to lay the sledgehammer down and pick up the framing hammer. Surround us with fathers and mothers who will teach us how to build. And Lord, we just rejoice for the revival that's coming to this land, that's coming to this nation, that's coming back to your body again. Lift up a shout of praise to the Lord this morning. Amen.